0: All right. If you have your Bible, go ahead and just open to Romans 15. Romans 15. Tonight we're we're still in this study in the fall on the church. We started it two weeks ago, thinking through what the Bible teaches about the church and uh, why it is so important for us to know these things. What does the Bible teach about the church? Why is that so important? Why is it an absolute necessity in our lives? as Christians. That's how we've kind of framed this thing. We've framed it the way I think the Bible frames it. Because Scripture doesn't just talk about the church as being something that's just really important in our lives, but as something that is absolutely necessary to you as a Christian. And, uh, and, and, and as I've said the last couple of weeks, necessary for a lot of reasons. But if we have any desire to have the assurance of our faith, and to be guarded in our faith, to persevere in our faith, and to have a place and a people in, with which to practice our faith and obey all the commands of Christ. The, the, the church is necessary. We talked about that two weeks ago, and then last week I sort of introduced this, this uh, series. And I talked about all the different um, uh, topics we're going we're gonna to deal with over the course of this fall. Last week we talked about the people of the church. And how Scripture is clear that the church is made up of believers. And, and that, so Christians, we are the church. Christians are the church. We talked about how the church is not a place. All right. Um, this is not God's house. Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 3, we are God's house. All right. So this place is, is sacred only insofar as it is the place that God has provided for this people to meet. All right? but if we should pick up and move somewhere else there would be nothing sacred about this ground or this building right we are we are God's house but when the bible talks about the church it talks about the church in two different senses when it comes to the people okay it's one it's true we we are the church but the but the bible talks about even that in two very different senses on the one hand the bible talks about the church the people of the church in a local way And on the other hand, it talks about it in a a universal way. This is basic stuff. The church is both local in one sense and universal in another sense. It's universal in the sense that the complete church is made up of all the believers in the world. Right? That, that, That fundamentally, we are all, no matter where you are located in the world, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we are all... Part of the same church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that we are brothers and sisters with, in the same family, with believers in China or in, in, throughout Africa or in India. One family all over the world. And I said the, the ancient creeds and confessions called this, the Apostle's Creed says, I believe in the Catholic church. Little c. It means worldwide. But it's universal in the sense, not that it's just everywhere in the church right now, but it's universal in the sense that it includes all who have ever believed from, from Adam and Eve till now, and all who will ever believe, right? So it's, it's, it's all who were before us, all who are now, and all who are coming. It's time to wake up. So clearly, clearly Paul has the, the church, the church, quote-unquote, in, in this sense in mind when he says, When he says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Christ did not just lay down his life for Lakeview Baptist Church or First Baptist Church of Apelica or any local church, but the church, that's all believers all over the world for all time, both past, present, and future. Universal, all the church, everywhere for all time. The Bible talks about the the church, the people of the church, in that universal way. And yet, Paul, when he was writing those words right there, that's Ephesians 5.25. Paul Paul is writing those words to a local church in Ephesus, of which Timothy was the pastor. Church in Ephesus. And he wrote letters to churches, local churches located in Corinth and in Colossae. Churches in Galatia, the region of Galatia, they were located there, located. So God has a, what I'm trying to say is God has a greater design, He has a greater design than simply knowing that there are believers all over the world. And, And having us, there's a greater design than having us being able to say that, you know, that we believe and we're saved by the same message, that people for all generations before us and everything, same, same, same. As beautiful as that is, there's also a more earthy design than that to the church. There's a more local, a more uh, flesh and blood design to this church that the scripture talks about. In fact, whenever the New Testament talks about the church, it is almost always, almost always talking about the, the church in some particular place. A local church of flesh and blood people. People in a particular place, particular people. And, it, and, it, and that's sort of, one of what I want to expand on a little bit tonight. As we think about the church, we're just wanting to develop our understanding of the church, the history of it, the formation of it, what the New Testament teaches about it over the course of this semester. And so I want to think about this particular people that make up the church, the local church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, we all we really said was the church is made up of believers. And while that's saying something very important, that's actually not saying very much. <laughs> all right, so um, I want to think about for a few minutes tonight the purpose of the church, but specifically as it is related to the meaning of membership, the meaning of membership. I want to talk about church membership tonight, membership in the local church. I asked you to open up romans chapter 15 we're going to start here but we're not going to necessarily camp out for a long time here we'll we'll look at a few different places in scripture so maybe if you brought a pen and paper you can jot some a lot of these references down because we're going to move through quite a few but i thought romans 15 is a good jumping off point so if you found romans 15 let's read verses 5 and 6 May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read it one more time. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Just pause right there. Think about that one phrase. May the God of endurance and encouragement. He could have used any adjectives to describe the Lord right there. He's the God of hope and peace. He's the God of joy and love. Endurance (laughs) and encouragement. Why do you think he picked out those adjectives to to describe the Lord there? Because what's what's he asking them to do? Grant you to live in such harmony with one another. We're flesh and blood, real sinners, all of us. So a lot of times, if, if I'm going to live in harmony with you and you're going to live in harmony with me and we're going to live in harmony with one another, it's going to take. I'm going to need some encouragement from the Lord sometimes and some endurance. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray over his word. Father, this is your inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And this and all the other scriptures we're going to see tonight. Lord, I pray that you would, as as mundane as some of these truths might seem, that you would awaken us to how important these things are. That we ought not be surprised that the most important things in this world don't come in brilliant, flashy packages. Jesus Christ came in a manger. In small Bethlehem. So open our eyes to see the importance of these simple things. Give us minds to understand the truth. Hearts to embrace and love it. Wills to obey it. Give me the help that I need to teach it and teach it clearly. And give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. That's the purpose of the church that we just read. Namely. So verse 5 is is the, the prayer. That issues forth into the purpose of verse 6. So that together, together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the church to glorify God. We exist for something. There's a purpose for us, and that is to glorify God. The, the, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the ultimate purpose of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Man, just marinate in that for a while. My ultimate purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's right. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And certainly that is the purpose of your life and my life. But this verse in Romans 15 is saying more than that, is it not? These verses are saying that God doesn't just have a purpose for you or for me individually, but He has a, a purpose that he, he desires to be expressed in the world that can only be expressed in a certain way through my life being joined together with your life and us doing something together. That, and to accomplish something that, that neither I nor you could do on our own. So notice it carefully the wording of verse 6. So that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if Southerners had been on the translation committee and given free reign and communication, that you would be y'all. It's plural. So that together, y'all may, with one voice, glorify God. Who is the y'all there? Who's the plural you? The church in Rome. So let's, let's pose the question here, though. Who was the church in Rome? How would they have been identified in Rome, as the church there, to ordinary Romans. Whenever the Bible talks about it, not just about the church in Rome, but any local church, it talks about this local church as if it was a very definable group of people. That you could mark it out. These people are the church, and these people are not. Very A very definite, definable group of people. And so I want to ask and try to answer two Basic questions tonight where where is membership where is church membership taught in the Bible? And what is church membership? Where is church membership taught in the Bible and what is church membership? okay let's let's take one of those at a time, starting with where is church membership in the Bible? I've heard this question a lot. Um, a lot of Christians understand that going to church is important, quote-unquote, and that having community in your life is really important. And it is. But if you start talking about church membership, like official church membership, they may not have any idea what you're talking about. Or even if you explain to them what you mean by it, a lot of times the question is then, well, where is that in the Bible? Where is it in the Bible that we're supposed to be church members? Fit in like any kind of official capacity. I mean, is church membership something that we came up with later? Or is it actually something we see evidence of in the New Testament itself? And I think we see it in the New Testament. Where? I think it's pretty uh, plainly there if you know what you're looking for. So here's where we're going to start bouncing around a little bit. We're going through acts on Sunday mornings and be going through acts all school year and the 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 passage in acts that we're going to look at this Sunday morning by the way, none of y'all were here last week y'all were gone everywhere. <laughs> golly, I was like, this is almost depressing, but anyway, um I never expected it though i was gonna, I was trying to make it through Acts two all in one week, I didn't do it made it halfway through, so we're going to do acts. The second half of two and all of three this week, so maybe. Um, so we're going to be in, the, in Acts 2 again this week. And at the end of, um, oh, and by the way, just remember remember the time period of Acts. This is important. Acts is talking about this time period that covered the first 30 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it starts like 40 days after the resurrection. So like a month later. Uh, And even in those earliest days, you see evidence of a definable number of people that are called this local church. So for example, the passage this Sunday in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches and 3,000 are saved, Peter's sermon on Pentecost, it says in Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added that day. Added to what? Added to the 120. How did, in the, even then, you had a definable number of 120. These came into the came into the fold through faith in Christ. Now they add to that number. And you've got this definable number. When you come to Acts chapter 6, there's a controversy and a dispute going on between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the, in the church in Jerusalem. And it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 2 that To deal with this, the twelve, that is the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So they summoned the full number of the disciples. They knew who they were. They, They know who is the church here and who is not the church, and they go get everybody as part of this church. They knew exactly who they were. You keep coming in Acts, you, keep come to, you come to Acts chapter 12. And here's how Acts chapter 12 begins. Verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Some who belonged to the church. Somehow they, these people had in some kind of public way joined that group of believers there. Publicly aligning themselves with that church, publicly and officially saying, I'm identifying myself in my life with this group of people. I'm with them. And so in that public way, how else do you explain how Herod would know they belonged to the church and thus persecute them? I mean, it's pretty clear. It doesn't say he persecuted Christians in general. He persecuted those who belonged to the church. And just think about that phrase. They belonged to the church. There's a definable, you just get outside the book of Acts, there's a definable group of people in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 18, um, in Jesus' words there. So hold your place here. Or you don't have to hold your place. I don't think we're coming back to Romans 15. Uh, Matthew 18, Matthew 18. This isn't going to be rocket science today, guys. I just want you to see it. Jesus in Matthew 18 is teaching his disciples about the church that he's establishing. And and he's talking to them in Matthew 18 about how we hold each other accountable to walk in holiness. Okay? So look there. If you're in Matthew 18, let's read... Verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, Jesus has in mind that you know exactly who makes up this church who are to make this decision. In other words, it, he is calling it this word translated you've heard this before probably. It, it, the, this word translated church is the Greek word ekklesia, which means a gathering, a congregation, a gathering of people. An official gathering of people. And this this people in this case are going to be called upon to make a decision about somebody. Because it's not on the screen, but just look in your Bible. Notice what it keeps saying in verses 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now often we say we read that verse where two or three are gathered in my name there I am among them and we we read that in terms of sweet little prayer meetings and they there's 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 two or three gathered in his name and he's here with us and it's true that it is true but that's not the context of this passage is it He's saying if somebody if somebody sins against you you go and talk to them about it If they don't listen to you, take two or three with you and go talk to them about it. If they don't listen to y'all, bring it before the whole church. And here's the thing. If even just two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with you as you make this decision about this unrepentant sinner. That's what he's saying. And he's saying even if it's not 100 people, if it's this tiny little church of just two or three people, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ resides in this church to deal with this unrepentant sinner. That's the context of this passage. And so, in this passage, Jesus has in mind that, you, that, that he assumes you will know exactly who it is that makes up this church. It's this definable group of people, these this, this people who are to make this serious decision. He doesn't just say, go out and find as many Christians as you can. And, and, but he says, tell it to the church. You know them and they know you. And that implies something even deeper. Think about this again. Think about the the situation that Jesus is describing, and it implies that not that there is just a definable group of people. Tell it to the church. Oh, I know who they are. It's not just that. It's also implying that this is this, this group, this assembly, this congregation, this church. It's not just definable in as to who they are, but it's a, it's a group of people who have come together on purpose. On purpose. And they are living in community with other, each other under a shared covenant. To encourage each other to live by it, and to hold each other accountable by it. Even if that covenant that they've come together under simply says, we're gonna hold each other accountable to live according to God's word. If that's all that it says, and it's as simple as that, it's still an intentional covenant. That's that's the root of a church. That's why as you go to the grocery store and you see you 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 run into a group of your friends on the on aisle five, you're a Christian and they're a Christian. That's why a local church doesn't just pop up right there on aisle five. Because it's not just where Christians are, it's where Christians have come together on purpose and have covenanted together and say, we're going to live around this covenant and we're going to encourage each other by this covenant, hold each other accountable by this covenant. And this passage in, in Matthew 18 implies that. It's the whole basis for this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, And it's not just what Jesus has with his disciples. We see this same thing lived out in the churches that Paul planted later on. So for our text last week, we were in 1 Corinthians. So you can flip over to 1 Corinthians if you want. And I reminded you, we were in 1 Corinthians 1-2 last week. And I reminded you as he called them, remember we talked about, he called them those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. We're like, these were rotten people. They had had awful things going on, and he still called them sanctified. It was pretty bad. And and, and go go to 1 Corinthians 5. I mean, one of the big issues in the church in Corinth was there was a guy in the church who was sleeping with his stepmother. While you also had people committing idolatry, eating food sacrificed to idols, they were suing each other, and on top of that, this guy was sleeping with his stepmom. And the church was not doing anything about it. In fact, they were they had a twisted view of the gospel that said kind of kind of what Paul said in Romans 6, shall I incre- uh, shall I go on sending that grace may increase? They would they would have been like, Yeah, you should. So anyway, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians the letter, and in this chapter in particular, to, to scold them for that and to command them to do what was right and do what was appropriate for them. So in 1 Corinthians 5, you turn and he talks with them about this. The background of this chapter is. Um, is you assume that this this man is completely unrepentant for his actions. He has no remorse for what he's done, and he's clearly in the wrong, and he's bringing dishonor to to Christ. He tells them in verse 1, he tells them in verse 1, if you're just looking in your Bible, that this is the kind of thing that pagans don't even tolerate. How much more should the church of Jesus Christ not tolerate it? The honor of Jesus is at stake. Remember, remember Romans, that together you all may with one voice glorify our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the motive behind the actions he's going to urge here. Not only for this man's good, I want you to do this, but so that you don't misrepresent Jesus in Corinth. Okay, So he asked them to remove this man from their congregation until he is repentant by the Lord. And look at verses 9 through 13. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you that you not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an adulterer, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. This is Matthew 18 brought into Corinth. Okay? Is is it not those inside the church that you are to judge well how am i know how am i to know who we are to hold accountable how are we to know who is inside the church because it's a definite on purpose intentional group of people there are people not just on the fringes just wandering in and out occasionally these are people who have covenanted with this church and say i'm a member and then we have higher standards for each other hmm So the church in in Corinth here is not just what you call every Christian in Corinth. No, it was all the believers who had been gathered there and established as the church. Among other things, to hold each other accountable, to live in following Christ honorably. So there was a definite group of people to be a part of or to be removed from. To be removed from something implies that you were officially there to begin with. But it wasn't just for accountability or, um, or in, 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 uh, discipline. It, in, in the New Testament, you see church membership is a definite thing and a, and a thing for the sake of caring for the poor and for caring for the needy. Um, we've already hinted at it in Acts chapter 6 when some widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food. They called this definite group of people together called the church and say, Take care of it. But well, we also see it in other places. Look, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Take a right. If you've gotten to Hebrews, you've gone too far. 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is Paul's first letter to Timothy like I said, who was pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul's an old man by this time. Already been on his three missionary journeys. And in 1 Timothy 5, he's given him specific instruction for the caring of widows. Look at verses 8 through 10. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Man, Paul Um, verse nine let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works if she's brought up children and has shown hospitality has washed the feet of the saints has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work so let them be enrolled enrolled in what Enrolled in uh, the, the church, the, the, the definable church's method of providing for these people, right? Somebody, and somebody's keeping a role. Somebody's keeping a role. We know who's here. And it says down in verse 16, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may not that it may care for those who are really widows. So the church was keeping a role of those within the church who were in need to provide for them. So the New Testament assumes that the local church is not some place where Christians just go in and out of whenever they're around. But it's a definite, defined people who have freely, as believers, joined together in a covenant relationship, to hold each other accountable, to encourage each other, to provide for each other. And not only that, it's not only for the sake of each other, so that you can hold each other accountable, and we can provide for the physical needs of each other. It's not just for those two things. But Scripture says the church has to be a definable, definite, on-purpose gathering, officially gathered, officially covenanted member, people Uh, so that those that God raises up as pastors and leaders know who is under their charge. Think about that. That that pastors and and leaders know who they are responsible to lead. And you can't just dismiss that because we're going to be held responsible for who we lead or fail to lead. Think about this. This is Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Or Peter would say to his pastors in 1 Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight he's talking to pastors here, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So how are pastors to know, how are pastors supposed to know who they're going to have to give an account for to God? If, if, if there's not some definable people that I'm shepherding, how do I know who my flock is? How do I know? Because the local church is a definite thing, it's a definite group of people who come together in covenant to be the church of Jesus Christ in this place. I, as a pastor, know who I have the responsibility to care for before God, and who to shepherd and hold to who to who, who to hold accountable, and you know who you're submitting to. To teach them and to be taught by them. To encourage and to be encouraged. To, to hold and be held in accountability. To know the needy you're providing for. and To provide, be provided for when you are needy. Look, man, I have been... I don't know, some of you may not know this. I, before I was uh, a college pastor, I was a, a pastor of a smallish church. And for seven years I was. And um, I love pastoral ministry. But I've been a, been a, a senior pastor for long enough to know, to see the heartache of, I've done a lot of funerals, is what I'm trying to say. Done a lot of funerals, been in a lot of hospitals to see the sick and the dying. And I've seen all kinds of, sick and dying people i've seen i've seen sick and but i want what i want to zero in on is sick and dying people who didn't have much family okay we're all going to get sick sometime <laughs> okay i'm talking about the people who are the people who didn't have much family and i've had to be at the, i've been at the bedside of sick and dying who didn't have much family and were not part of a church and sick and dying, who didn't have much family, but were part of the church. I can't describe to you the difference. The, the person who, who is sick and dying has no family, and has no church, is not part of the church, is not covered with the church, has no one around, but maybe the nurses, right? But I've seen, I've seen, I've seen, I have seen sweet little old ladies whose children have already died and her husband has already died. She, she, for those reasons, doesn't have any family left and now she's in the hospital. She has no family that's going to come see her but she's surrounded by these men and women who are not at all her age but who love her because she has served them and they've served her and she is just almost carried into the arms of Jesus by her church family when she had nobody else to be around, no family to be there. I'm telling you, the benefits of being a part of a local church on purpose, being on roll there, knowing them and them knowing you is a big deal. It's a big deal. Church, church membership is not a A Bible Belt invention. It's it's clearly found in the Bible 40 days after the resurrection. But what is it? What is it? We've already said a fair bit about what it is and what it looks like, so I'm not going to belabor it here because I've already said a lot of it, what I would say in this section. But we're going to wrap it up here. It is you voluntarily as a believer joining a local body in an official way, and but becoming a part of this, church, this local church family or some other one. It is you knowing that the New Testament expects believers to identify their lives with the local church. You've got to ask yourself, if you're professing to be a believer and, 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 and you, you no longer live at home, you live here, right? And you're professing to be a believer, and you live here now, and you're going to live here, for a lot of you, for four, four whole years of your life. If you, if you don't have any plans to join this or any other church while, you, while you're here, why not? Why not? Jonathan Lehman says, show me a Christian in the Bible, other than the Ethiopian eunuch who's in the middle of a desert, Who is not committed to a local church? Throughout the New Testament, the entire entire New Testament, believers unite their profession of faith and their lives together. That's just what they do. So at Lakeview, we just tell you the process here. At Lakeview, we have a class every month called Discover Lakeview. There's one coming up this Sunday where somebody who is wanting to know about church membership or wants to think about becoming a member of this church, you go on a Sunday afternoon after, after morning service and, and you learn about the, the, the purpose of joining a church, the covenant that we live by here, what we believe, and then we get to hear your story about how you came to faith in Christ so that we know who you are as you desire to become a member and you know who we are. And then we live together. And you get to do things like hear Anna stand up here and say, Mr. Jerry needs people to hold bed babies in ESL. And you, and you go, oh, I know who Mr. Jerry is. I'm a member of this church. And I'm going to hold bed babies. <laughs> right? Because this is my church family. And I want to serve people outside of this room. I want to serve I want to serve internationals who come here who don't know Jesus Christ and their opportunity to learn English and to hear about Jesus is here, but they can't come if nobody holds their baby watches their baby but you 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 are here and you know this and you you know that you you you're just you're just in and out here all the time you can hear an uh, you can hear an announcement like that and as soon as you walk out you've forgotten about it but if you've come here and you you have very consciously and on purpose say i want to plant my roots in this church and i want to i want to covenant with not just with these people but all these people covenant myself i want to lay down my life in this church i want to serve this people you hear that announcement differently so just in in your in your years at Auburn it's this people potentially that you've committed yourself to and submitted yourself to so that so that you are publicly identifying with this body of believers in auburn to glorify Christ in your life while you're here so that we can do it together as Christ expects us this is the same path that you're going to follow for the rest of your life after you leave this place you know think about it this way and by the way I'm not telling you in all this to that you you've got to join Lakeview as much as I would want you to I'm saying join a local church join a local church if you're still if you're if you're still a member back home okay where you don't live anymore And you potentially haven't lived there in three or four years. Your pastor there is being held accountable, will be held accountable for your spiritual well-being here. But he can't see your life here. He's not here. But the churches here are here. And they can see you and you can see them. So you need to submit to the people where you are. Right? Right? The New Testament way is that not just that the church is believers all over the world, and it's is all the church is just believers, no they're believers who have intentionally come together in a formal way saying, "Sign me up, right to be a part of this church and to be a part of this flesh and blood people till you go home to see with Jesus or you move somewhere else that's it's yeah, as simple as that that's just. I don't know how to read the New Testament any other way. Let's just be obedient in that way. Let's pray.